Hello, this is Aaron and welcome back to the podcast. Some of you may have been looking for this this morning and you noticed that I didn't upload one in the morning and here we are in the afternoon. I usually record in the morning. What's up with that? Well, I was hard at work today getting another draft of my book submitted to the publisher. Uh, you know, I've alluded to this in the past that I've been working on a book project and that is coming along. I just hit another milestone today and hopefully I'll be able to tell you all much more about that in the near future. So stay tuned for that. I also want to, before we get into it, just encourage you all to check out my translation of John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin. This is particularly true for those of you who are Protestants. John Owen was a Puritan writer who wrote what many pastors, Tim Keller, John Piper, etc., have cited as one of the most influential and powerful books that they've read on the topic of eliminating sin in your life. But it's extremely difficult to read because it was written in 1656 and Owen wasn't really a great writer too, to be quite honest. So what I did is I took it and essentially translated it uh, in a sort of NIV paraphrase style into modern English and did things like add section headings and new chapter titles and things like that that make the organization better. So it's really uh, much easier to read than it used to be, accessible, frankly, to most people for the very first time. Most people could not have easily read it and understood it. So check it out. You can buy it wherever books are sold. Uh, it's uh, you know John Owen, The Mortification of Sin with Aaron M. Wren, translator and adapter. So check that out. I wanted to comment on a few events that have occurred recently. Obviously, we just had the school shooting in Nashville, which, as we can see, the reaction to that is very different than many other school shootings. As you know, people's responses to these types of events is completely opportunistic. If they could put a racial angle on it, for example, they will. Uh, if not, they fall back to guns or other things. Or as we saw, you know, in, even in the case of 9-11, we saw this, the real danger is not held to be, you know, the people who are committing these crimes, but the real danger is the backlash that these things uh, might produce. Obviously, a very tragic event. I'm of the opinion that there are whack jobs of every persuasion, so I don't necessarily read too much into the perpetrator, but clearly this is an example of how the social environment of the negative world does kind of create background conditions for people to, you know, act out hostilities towards Christians. We also saw Donald Trump indicted for uh, settling a lawsuit. I'm not sure exactly what, what the claim is that he did. Uh, and then we also saw this guy, you probably have never heard of him, but his name was Douglas Mackey. He was listed as one of the single most influential social media influencers on the 2016 campaign. I was a pro-Trump tweeter, uh, made tons and tons of memes, and he was uh, indicted and convicted under some sort of Klan statute from the 19th century uh, over a tweet that he made. They claimed a tweet that he made uh, somehow unconstitutionally suppressed the vote, uh, although other people made essentially almost identical memes, and he's the only one that's been... Uh, prosecuted for it, and he was convicted and now uh, faces up to 10 years in jail for making a tweet. I mean, think about this. The guy made a tweet. So, uh, you know, we can see with this. And so uh, what we see here, I think in these cases, 
as you see people say things like, well, no one's above the law. But let's be honest, lots of people are above the law. Bill Clinton basically confessed to committing perjury, clearly committed perjury. He wasn't indicted. Hillary Clinton objectively illegally had classified documents on her insecure private server hosted in her home, and she was not prosecuted. She also deleted 33,000 emails. Uh, She was not prosecuted. Uh, Obviously, there's a movement by these prosecutors to try to get Trump by any means necessary. And these are the same prosecutors who are dismissing cases um, right and left. Uh, At the same time, they engage in these very targeted prosecutions of you know, conservatives they don't like. And this has become a pervasive feature sort of of governance, especially in blue cities where, you know, vast tracts of the criminal code have essentially been thrown out the window. At the same time, the basically law-abiding get harassed. This has been called anarcho-tyranny. I think it was actually Sam Francis who coined that term, where we essentially have anarchy in the sense that criminals and other sort of miscreants are allowed to run loose but it's also tyrannical and that the law-abiding are harassed and subjected to the force of law uh, by by the government. And so, you know, for example, just an article, uh, I think it was in the Washington Post, that 67% of all the cases in the District of Columbia are not being pursued by the prosecutor. So think about that. Two-thirds of the cases, they're not even prosecuting. We, of course, also saw this uh, during the riots uh, after George Floyd you know, the rioters, by and large, did not get prosecuted at all. I mean, a few of them were who committed particularly egregious crimes. So there was uh, this two people in New York who firebombed a police car, and they were, you know, convicted and I believe got sentenced to prison. But I think it was actually half of what the QAnon shaman got who committed no violence and was just walking around in the Capitol. So, you know, there. And we also see that the people who defend themselves from crime in these cities are the ones that get prosecuted. So in St. Louis, what we saw was, again, the BLM rioters were just allowed to go crazy. And then these two people who, you know, basically I'm not particularly big fans of these people, they're standing outside with their house with their guns. They get prosecuted for essentially brandishing weapons with people who trespass onto their property, uh, et cetera. We saw the same thing in Kenosha you know, where they tried to get a premeditated murder rap on Kyle Rittenhouse, who was on video clearly defending himself against it. Again, should he have been there? Probably not. Should he have been carrying around, you know, an AR-15 and all that? Probably not. But he was clearly connected. He was clearly engaging in self-defense. And of course, this politically motivated prosecutor goes after them. And what we uh, not only see very selective prosecutions, um, in these cases. And by the way, this also applies, I've said many times, to corporate crime. Uh, the, the line I like to say, you know, a single mother who's poor and writes a bad check faces more legal risk in America than a too-big-to-fail bank CEO who commits industrial-scale fraud. So we see, uh, in the case of Wells Fargo, they literally created over 2 million bogus accounts customers never reflected, never requested, and Basically, they got a slap on the wrist fine, nobody went to jail, and the CEO gets a golden parachute. And even in the Silicon Valley bank failure that we just saw, you know, the government, of course, steps in and bails out all these Silicon Valley companies. Now, you might say, Aaron, you know, yes, the stockholders should lose everything, but depositors shouldn't lose money. But if you've been reading about this bank, what you see is these are not ordinary depositors. If you 
look at like Roku, for example, who had something like $500 million sitting in this bank. Corporations don't leave that kind of cash just sitting in the bank. These deposits, in many cases, were a result of other transactions and relationships, often involving personal relationships between the executives and founders of these companies and the Silicon Valley Bank. So they were known for giving white glove service to founders and getting things like mortgages. So a lot of these founders got like sweetheart personal loans from these companies. Sometimes their companies got venture debt, it's called venture debt financing. And of course, in return, they're supposed to, in the case of the companies, keep their cash at Silicon Valley Bank. So you can view the risk that they took on as part of the capital stack of the company and how they finance themselves. And in the cases of these founders, uh, and some of the videos that I've seen, one of his venture capitalists is like, you got to get to know Silicon Valley Bank. And it was talking all about how eight guys showed up to, you know, give him his personal loans and his mortgages. I mean, if you are making bad business decisions, like putting hundreds of millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars of your company's money at risk in essentially a checking account and not investing it through sweeps and like, you know, income and securities and other things, and you are getting these sweetheart mortgages from the bank, that's basically corruption. Like there's stunning amounts of corruption in Silicon Valley, but is there going to be a criminal investigation of any of this? Probably not. They all get bailed out and everybody's going to get to go on with business as usual. So again, it's not just, uh, it's not just sort of low level crime, uh, like, you know, shooting up with fentanyl in the streets. It's also C-suite fraud in corporate America, and many other things. And, you know, our courts, which are supposed to stop things, you know, like this, often just go along with these selective prosecutions. So, uh, for example, in the Douglas Mackey case, the uh, federal government went forum shopping uh, and found a place where they thought they, they could get him, which was the Eastern District of New York, which is Brooklyn. So basically it's like Brooklyn and Long Island, I, I believe. Maybe Queens, one of Queens is in there. Manhattan is in what's called the Southern District of New York. And he didn't live in the, you know, he didn't live in the Eastern District of New York. He didn't tweet from the, uh, Eastern District of New York. There's no victim uh, in the, the Eastern District of New York. There was some, you know, the judge basically said, well, you know, maybe some fiber optic cables came through here. So they were basically able to try him in a venue uh, where they had a friendly judge and he didn't even, he wasn't even there. It's like, we'll just assert jurisdiction over this. Uh, and a whole slew of other things happened in this trial. And you see the same thing happen with the Alex Jones case where he was ordered to pay, you know, some billions of dollars in damages for his comments about Sandy Hook. Now, you go try suing the New York Times because they said something about you. If you're lied about by any other media outlet, the courts are never going to let that case get near a jury. And even if it gets to a jury and they give a conviction, it's almost certainly going to get thrown out. But what we see with Alex Jones is they essentially create the Alex Jones exception. We don't like Alex Jones. He's a bad guy. So we're going to basically create this legal exception to go get him. And then you'll see people on the internet say, oh, it's going to establish a precedent that can go after, you know, mainstream journalists. No, it don't. None of these will be precedents. In all of these cases, these are going to be one-off exceptions that are used to nuke people that our ruling class does not like. And so 
you start looking at all this stuff, a lot of it's been hitting recently, and you think, wow, how do I respond to that? And I think from a Christian perspective, one of the things we should say is none of this should surprise us, right? Because injustice is just something we should expect to see because we know what human nature is. We know about the realities of the fallen world and injustice we will always have with us. There is a lot of injustice today. Frankly, there's probably been more injustice in the past in America than there is right now. Slavery was an injustice, pretty severe injustice. Well, we ended that, but is that the end of injustice? No, many new ones constantly coming along. So we should just expect this. It should not be a surprise to anyone when we see injustice. It should not be a surprise to anyone when we see the rich and powerful getting favored and the politically disfavored getting crushed. Uh, that shouldn't surprise us. And nor should it cause us to give in to despair, nor should it cause us to give in to hate, and nor should it cause us to do things that would be harmful to ourselves and others. And I keep, I've said this, variations of this in the past on my podcast, every time something happens that I know I see people getting upset about on Twitter, I just go to what God said to Cain. You know, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not do well, beware, sin is crouching at the door. The point is when things start going poorly from our perspective, even if it's just our candidate, like losing an election or something, it's very easy to do things you'll regret later. Don't do that. And so I don't think there's anything particularly unique about this. This is just the ordinary uh, ways that uh, that life exists in, in the world. It always has, it always will be. And that doesn't mean we should be indifferent to it or we shouldn't contend for justice, but we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking this is some unique thing. It's something that just happens in the world. However, I do think one thing that we should be responding to as we look at injustice in America today is breaking this sort of linkage that exists, particularly in the conservative mind, with the American system, with the American government, as being the good guys, right? We like to think we're the good guys, the Russians are the bad guys, right? That was me growing up in the Cold War. It's like Kilikami for mommy, all that stuff people used to say. And, you know, conservatives are used to being on Team USA, rah, rah, we're the best country in the world, American exceptionalism, we're so free, we have democracy, We've got the rule of law. Ha ha, look at all these third world countries. We don't do the things they do, etc. And the truth is, today, in this world, there's not a whole lot of difference between the United States and the third world country. The president of El Salvador, that Nayib Bukele, or however you pronounce his name, who I recently wrote about and said, you know, don't get too excited about him and just because he locked up a bunch of criminals. Uh, but he, he was out tweeting the other day. He's like, Imagine what the American press would say if I indicted a former president of my country. This is the exact sort of thing that we tell other countries, you know, that they're, they're you know, backsliding on democracy or something. It's like a, a prime example of the third world. And again, look at Douglas Mackey and compare to how our press treats that, uh, what's his name, Navalny, the Russian dissident. Oh, they've locked him up for a bogus crime. Well, yeah, we lock people up for bogus crimes too, right? Or when there's some, you know, massive protest, some color revolution protest, and, you know, in Belarus, they crack down on it, and they, they, oh, they put all these people in jail. That's, you know, that's what we did, right? On, 
uh, on uh, select protests that the regime, if you want to call it that, doesn't approve of. And so I think the reality is we need to see more clearly that the America as it exists today, our leadership uh, is basically very corrupt. It's not very competent. It's animated by bad values. Uh, and it is built on today systematic and pervasive injustice. And we just need to recognize that. Now, that does not mean that all is bad in the United States. There are many wonderful things about our country. We do, we do still have basic rule of law in a lot of places. Uh, I'm not going to be someone who's going to say, oh, it's become, you know, totally, total legal anarchy. It hasn't yet done that. We have great economy in a lot of ways, great technological advancements. But I'd go back and say, you know what? The Roman Empire uh, had all that too. Rome was the symbol of peace. Rome had advanced technology and infrastructure. It had the aqueducts. It had the Roman roads. I believe some wealthy Romans actually had running indoor hot water uh, in, in their homes. You know, and again, it was an extremely wealthy society. So if you were fortunate enough to be part of the top 20% or whatever of that day, you could live very well. Uh, they had like high culture, the theaters, uh, you know, all the philosophy. You know, there was a lot going on in Rome. There's a lot to be positive about, of course, at the same time. You know, they're crucifying people. They have a slave economy. Uh, you, you know, there's arbitrary justice. You know, there's many, many terrible things that happened in Rome. And I don't think many of us would go back and say, oh, yeah, Rome is some paragon of justice. And so, you know, the, the, you know, the Christians of that era certainly did not identify Rome with, you know, justice and goodness, you know, and all things right. And I think we should take, we should view the United States government to some extent the same way, you know, we, we might view Rome. And so, yes, we can recognize all the great things materially and technologically that uh, our system produces at the same time, not ignoring the uh, the injustices that are very pervasive and built into it in the nature of the people who are running it, who, like many of the Roman Caesars, are not good people. Uh, and they're, they're the cost, right, of things like fentanyl and other things, which they're doing absolutely nothing about. Uh, there's another injustice. You want to talk about more? I did a whole podcast on, like, wow, we're legalizing pot, we're legalizing casino gambling, we've you know, basically taking all the breaks off of hardcore porn. I mean, imagine if they spent one-tenth of the energy trying to get rid of this porn that they've spent on getting rid of quote-unquote disinformation, I, you know, a.k.a. opinions people don't like. So, uh, you know, it's just like there's a huge, huge, huge list of things that are injustice. And I think we should just basically look at America in that light and say, this is what it's produced. And we have to recognize, I think, the legitimacy of the government insofar as, you know, all the authorities exist were established by God. They are the incumbent government and, you know, they hold that position. At the other time, I would just say they're morally illegitimate in many respects and there's no reason, you know, for us to pretend otherwise. And one of the things that has happened for a lot of people is, you know, any alternative to kind of the, the current system and the current way things are running now they just can't imagine. It's like, oh, why would we want to take away all this great, wonderful things we have? Well, you know, I think we need some big changes, uh, which, by the way, we've made big changes multiple times in American history, making big changes in the system 
and changing the people who are running the system is something that is very much part of the authentic American political tradition. Don't let them gaslight you on that. Uh, and so this idea that like, oh, we have this great, you know, oh, what if anything threatened our democracy? Well, I will tell you, our democracy is increasingly producing a lot of very toxic, negative, and unjust results, you know, like a, like declining life expectancy. There was just an article in the Financial Times, uh, and uh, i probably include the tweet thread of it uh, in the next digest. This reporter's like, it's stunning. At every single income level in America, every single point on the income distribution, Americans live you know, shorter lives than people in England. Now, England's got a lot of problems. I mean, I keep saying, look at all the terrible, toxic problems in England. They got a ton of problems. And yet, kind of the average American has the life expectancy of the poorest places in England. And again, you know, we're having this thing. We have more people living in single-parent households in terms of the share of our population, share of our kids, than any other country in the world. I don't think people realize, you know how many single mothers there are in America? It's like more than any other country in the world. As a share of us, again, 100,000 people a year dying of fentanyl. There's a lot of problems here. And um, so, again, uh, there's not much we can do about a lot of them, but we should at least be clear-eyed and not gloss over the things that are going on in our country and rethink, at a minimum, our psychological relationship with the power structures of this country not with the american people i love our people i love our country but the systems of power uh the systemic injustice that exists i do believe exists uh in all these ways i've been talking about uh you know i, I don't support that in any way shape or form and by the way speaking of systemic injustice this is what we see with you know the evangelical justice crowd you know, they're constantly telling us we need to care about justice and systemic justice. How many of the people who say that all the time have ever commented on any of the things that I'm talking about? How many of them are talking about pot legalization and gambling? How many people talk about gambling and porn? It's, it's like that political piece I keep coming back to, how the GOP gave up on porn. And again, you see this almost, you know, in the, in the religious world as well. Porn is an individual failing. Your problem with porn is you're consuming it you are, you know, you need to get off of porn, which it's true. It is an individual failing and you do need to get off of it. But the idea that we've satur super saturated our society with super hardcore porn uh, that basically, unlike a lot of other people, uh, have no trouble getting people to process their credit card transactions. And, you know, even when you hear that they've lost their credit card, well, it's amazing. You always seem to get it back. Uh, amazing. These people never get added to the no fly list like some other people did. So, uh, you don't hear these, you don't hear the justice crowd talk about these injustices. They're very curiously selective in the things that they talk about in terms of injustice. Only the things that sort of secular elite society, for the most part, uh, talks about are the things they will describe as justice issues. And then, of course, they demand that you get in line behind them and you vocally support them. They almost adopt this whole sort of silence as violence thinks if you're not doing this, if you're not engaged on our issues, you know, then you must be a bad person, you know, or whatever. But of course, are they engaging on any of these issues? No. And uh, that's why I say they're they're not impressive people uh, in, in any way for the most part. There's, there's some exceptions, okay? I'm, not saying, so I'm making a generalization here. But, I mean, just think about that. Next time you hear somebody shrieking about, you know, some kind of injustice, just ask it, well, what about all these other injustices? When are you going to talk about them? When are you going to engage on them? And um, 
I don't think necessarily, again, that everybody has to engage on everything, to be quite honest. It's okay for people to pick their battles. Uh, but those folks, especially the ones on the whole racial justice front, they don't want to say that you can pick your battles. They think you must engage on that particular issue in the way they demand that you do it, uh, which I don't think you actually have to. I think that you could be on homelessness. You could be on anti-porn. There's a lot of things you could go on and say, this is the issue I'm focused on. And again, if, if racial justice is our issue, that's perfectly valid. I think that's a great issue. We should be focused on that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that every single person must be forced to engage on it the way they do. And so again, what we see, very curiously selective about the things that they get outraged about. And there are injustices happening every day in America uh, about which they have very little to say. And so that would be perhaps one other thing, is when you start looking around and you're seeing injustice, just ask, What's the justice crowd have to say about this? A lot of times, they have nothing to say on a wide variety of these topics. So in any case, I think the key is do not, you know, despair or act shocked when injustices happen. We know they're going to happen. We should expect them to always happen. And we need to be in control of ourselves when things that we don't like happen in the world and not allow ourselves to get, you know, yeah, caught in some social media feeding frenzy or something. But it should also have, cause us to have a clear-eyed and realistic view of America's leadership class and the system's power in our society. You may not come to the same conclusion I came to, but I think we ought to at least evaluate them in light of these injustices, many of which they actually perpetrate themselves uh, on the system. And yeah, I think we should look around when other people start talking about justice and just say, okay, great, what are they not talking about? It's like uh, in, in the, uh, uh, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle. It's the dog that didn't bark, right? What are they not barking about? So just some thoughts, uh, because I know some of these things have been out there. And again, don't give in to despair. Don't hate other people. Don't do anything that might ruin your your own life. Uh, and uh, maybe you can pray about it. So uh, with that, I'll talk to you next week.